Well, Insiders, and a very pleasant good afternoon to you, wherever you may be. This is your host, Bruce Ash, and Inside Track co-host... Ed Wilkinson. ...coming to you live from the luxurious KVOI broadcast complex in Tucson, Arizona. The boys are back together. You know, Eb and I think uh, I think this is our third year we're starting together. It is. Uh, together on Inside Track. Great to be back together. Thanks for tuning in to a special America at War edition of Inside Track. Eb, it's great to see you. And uh, you. How the heck are you feeling? How's your new axle? It's great. Yeah, <laughs> life, life is good. Uh, I, I'm just so ecstatic to be uh, back in one and a half pieces. <laughs> Well, you look great. I saw you and Tammy last night at the MO Club, and uh, it was it was great seeing you. Uh, we have another great show today. In just a few moments, we'll be talking with retired Army Green Beret and Arizona State Senator Frank Antonori, who will give us his take on the unprecedented phone call between Joint Chiefs Chairman Mark Milley and the Chinese Head Red General Liu. Was the heads-up... General uh, Milley gave to the Chinese commie head red general treasonous? Should Milley resign? Should he be held accountable for his actions? We'll get Frank's take on that shortly. Our guest for the entire second half of the show is best-selling author Richard Evans on his book, Roosevelt and Churchill, The Atlantic Charter, on the 80th anniversary of our alliance with Britain. The book co-offered with Michael Kluger was favorably reviewed by the Wall Street Journal. Mr. Evans will will spin for us the incredible story how the Charter Alliance was formed. This portion of Inside Track brought to you by my co-host, Eb Wilkinson, and his partner, Gary Imus, from Imus Wilkinson Investment Management, whose baby steps approach to your wealth management is designed so you never have to solely depend on socialist security. Call Eb at 777-1911 and let him help you also. Before Eb and I speak with Frank Antonori, I do have a few thoughts to share with all of you on recent events. For those of you old enough to remember the 1964 movie, Seven Days in May, the news we received this week about the Joint Chiefs staff, a Joint Chiefs chair giving a heads up to our chief adversary in Red China is like fiction come true and in a most frightening way. In that movie, you may recall the fictional American president, Jordan Lyman, played by Frederick March, hopes to bring an end to the Cold War by signing a nuclear disarmament treaty with the Soviets, much to the displeasure of the hawkish General James Scott, played by Burt Lancaster, chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff. When Scott's aide, Martin Casey, that was played by Kirk Douglas, stumbles on shattering evidence that the general is plotting a coup to overthrow Lyman in seven days, Casey alerts the president, setting off a dangerous race to thwart the takeover. Sound familiar? No matter how many times we hear from Kabul Kirby and Sock Puppet, sock puppet Jen Saki, this smells awful. Their story, the phone call was no big deal, move along here, nothing to see, just move along, is just another one of their lies. Millie has confirmed the phone call did occur, but if there's nothing untoward, shouldn't the transcript have been released by now? The Woodward Costa book reveals that Millie has placed himself improperly in the strategic military chain of command while he is certainly part of 
not part of that. Has he violated, do you think, uh, military strategic chain of command? Should he resign? Should Millie be remanded over for court-martial? Now, none of this is for me to say, but why haven't we heard from other senior military leaders in protest, much less the Secretary of Defense, in protest of his breaking protocol and giving key information to an adversarial enemy who is threatening our East Asia defense partners. From Europe to Asia, our friends and enemies are wondering what the heck is going on in our American government. Our world leadership superiority is being undermined by political generals like Milley. Milley says he feared the mental competency of President Trump, but stands by an obviously diminished President Biden. Imagine that. Personally, I'm more concerned with General Milley's competence and judgment given the news about his phone call as well as his advice to the president turning over 80-plus billion dollars worth of arms and materiel which are being used to beat down Afghan civilians and God knows what else to say nothing about his agreeing with Secretary of State Blinken to outsource security for American evacuees to the freaking Taliban which has cost American lives and may cost far many more lives in the future. Doesn't it seem to you Milley is fighting white rage more than he's defending America against our allies? He has participated in turning our fighting forces into a political machine, which is dangerous as well as illegal. Have you wondered over the past nine months whether the misdirected actions of this government from Biden to Blinken Millie, Austin, and Mayorkas at all are blunders, or are they intentional moves designed to weaken America? Mr. Producer, let's go to our first break. When we return, Frank Antonori joins us to give us his thoughts on the politicization of our armed forces. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. I'm proud to welcome my good friends at Tucson Iron and Metal Retail to Inside Track as an advertiser. Jamie Kipper and her staff are conservation experts. They sell round and square steel tubing, metal plate and roofing materials, as well as new and used steel, aluminum, and stainless steel to ranchers, artists, interior designers, roofers, and do-it-yourselfers, just like all of the listeners here. Tucson Iron and Metal Retail is open Monday through Fridays, 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m., and Saturdays, 8 a.m. to noon. Tucson Iron and Steel Retail, 701 East 36th Street. Call 520-209-1576 or go to tucsonironretail.com. And when you do call, mention this ad and receive an additional 10% discount on their already great prices. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up with science. You mean you don't use a shoe? No, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? None of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Wouldn't it be great if political leaders could create that country again? 
Learn how to do exactly that, one family at a time, with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. Call me, Eb Wilkinson. I am USWilkinson.com, 777-1911, 777-1911. Okay. Bruce, I think we're on. Hey, uh... Let me uh, let me welcome you back to Inside Track. This portion of today's show brought to you by our friends Jamie and Gary Kipper from Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. They've got some of the best surplus steel around in stock right now, ready to help you with your next project. So call Jamie and her steel pro Craig Beach at 209-1576. Listen to what their customers have to say about Jamie and her team. Great place for surplus metal needs. Beams, panels, rods, grates, commercial, industrial, etc. Large lot to pick through with a very helpful staff. This is the retail shop. Helpful staff, great prices. And a big shout out and a big shout out to Eric Rudin and his professional team at Essential Pest. Summer rains begin weeds to your home or business. Listen to what Kayla said about the weed crew at Essential. Great service and great prices. Essential's been treating my yard for the past three years. Initially, I was told it would be reduced by 60 to 70%, but it worked better than expected. Didn't have to pull a single weed. So listen to her. Call the pros at 886-3029. These are two great locally owned, family-run businesses that you can depend on. Bruce and I do, and so should you. On to our special guest, one of the nation's fiercest and most knowledgeable warriors, former Army Green Beret warfighter Frank Antonori. He knows something about protecting America and our national defense. Frank, welcome. Great, great intro. Frank's not here. Where's Frank? <laughs> Maybe he's out in the uh, mountains of, of Afghanistan. It's hard to say. Oh, my God. Um, well, look, uh, as we talked about before, you almost have to wonder uh, if what's happened in our government is intentional or if it's just plain incompetence because everywhere you turn around um we're we're in trouble we got frank all right frankie you missed a great intro <laughs> sorry about that no problem I'm, let me start off again welcome to one of our nation's fiercest and most knowledgeable warriors frank antonori <laughs> hey frank how are we doing we're doing great Man, I, I got to tell you, Bruce and I, during the break, we're shaking our heads, bitching about the government and everything going on. We've got uh, uh, the uh, Joint Chiefs Chair, uh, Millie Vanilli, you know, saying he didn't say it, he did say it. He's talking about his communist counterpart, suggesting he would provide a heads up if President Trump was going to launch a nuclear strike against Red China. Like Trump's going to randomly wake up in the morning and push the button. But uh, Millie, yeah. Uh, what? Yeah, this is, it, it's all smoke and mirrors. It's all smoke and mirrors. This is the guy who thought, you know, that there was this white supremacist army that was going to storm the Capitol. So he turned, you know, the, the Capitol into Fallujah, basically, by putting fences and razor wire everywhere. You know, that same crazy idea. Uh, to think that the most anti-war president that we've had in decades uh, was going to nuke China on his way out the door is just an insane stretch. I don't think there's anybody that buys that one bit. No. Nobody. No. So here's my question. Millie's acknowledged the phone call, but he didn't acknowledge what he said in it. Um, 
Bob Woodward and Robert Costa were pretty uh, explicit about what they say happened. So should Milley be removed from the Pentagon and remanded to a prison cell and away to court-martial? Well, he should immediately be removed from his post, I think, until until there's an investigation. Now, you know, I'm Bob Woodward's not the, you know, the, the most honest guy. So, you know, I'll, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt um, initially. But, I mean, you know, people are innocent until proven guilty. So I think they should investigate whether uh, he made the claims that Woodward is claiming in his book. And if that's the case, then, yeah, he's, he's guilty of some serious crimes. Well, we're um, looking at a double... It's just astonishing. Yeah, we're looking at a double standard here. Trump makes a phone call, uh, and they immediately call for his impeachment and, and run it through the flagpole, and yet nothing there that he did was illegal, you know? And, and well, look, look, look at what they did to General Flynn for and, failing yes. to register as an agent. They destroyed the guy for just not filling out a form, you know? I mean, this is just insane. This guy here is... Basically, you know, let me let me back up. So so let's sum up what's happened here over the last uh, couple of weeks slash months. So General Milley is the guy in charge of all of our armed forces. He's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So he wakes up one morning and decides to violate his oath of office and say he's no longer going to take orders from the president of the United States. He secretly has a meeting with senior U.S. military leaders telling them that they are not to execute any order from the president and told them to violate their oaths of office, which is to faithfully discharge the orders given to me by the president of the United States, right? Everybody works for him. He's the commander in chief. So he tells all these other officers, you don't do anything until you get the okay from me. Right. So he tells them to violate their oath of office. Then he goes and picks up the phone and he calls what I would say are arch adversary, the Chinese. And they're causing all sorts of trouble in, in, in the Indo-Pacific area there. Right. They've got aircraft carriers out there now. They're claiming islands that belong to other countries. They're building islands. They're challenging shipping lanes. They're challenging airspace. You know, all sorts of challenges. They're, they're sticking it to us on. He decides he's just going to call them up and say, hey. My president of the United States is nuts. This is basically the gist of the call. I'm really worried that he's going to do something irrational. So I'm going to call you up and give you a heads up in advance if anything like that's going to happen. So not to mention the fact that, you know, nuclear weapons have a variety of ways to get there. Some are done yes. by large ballistic missiles. Others are dropped from aircraft and whatnot. So if he, if you picture this for a minute, he was going to call an enemy of the United States that if the president were just say hypothetically, again, this was never going to happen. But let's just say that the, the Chinese made a move on Taiwan and the president of the United States authorized a, an armed response uh, to that. This guy was going to pick up the phone and call them and tip them off and basically let them know the attack was coming, putting it at risk the lives of those airmen and sailors, in all likelihood, and Marines that would be involved in that response. Bottom okay, line, this is treason. Is astonishing. This astonishing is treason. To me. It, it's astonishing. Yeah, well, it meets the definition uh, of treason because um, there was a case, Carmen uh, versus the United States, it goes back... Uh, to when the, the Nazi sympathizers were on trial uh, after World War II for helping Nazi saboteurs in the United States. And the Supreme Court actually ruled in that case, because the definition of treason is the only crime, by the way, listed in our Constitution, by the way. 
That is the only crime specifically mentioned in the yes. Constitution is treason. It says you have to have two eyewitnesses to that act. Now, if he was on the phone talking and there were people there, I'm sure there were, and there are people listening on that phone, there's definitely two witnesses uh, to this. And there's probably a transcript of this uh, Somewhere. as well. And, of course, of course, the guy on the other end is also a witness, the guy that was hearing the phone call. So, so the, but then there was this in the Carmen versus the United States. There was this argument over what is the definition of treason. Well, the Supreme Court spelled that out, and that is providing material aid to the enemy of the United States, providing um, resources, providing aid and comfort, providing anything that would give them an advantage or an ability to make harm to the United States. That's what the Supreme Court said in that case. There's precedent for it. it they, they clearly defined it. If you go read that case and then you go read what he's accused of doing, he meets the standard. Absolutely, he does. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I, I think he's got a real real problem. Let's not even bring in the fact that this is the guy that gave up the most defendable place in Afghanistan and handed over $84 billion oh worth of military yeah. hardware to our enemies. You know, that alone would be something that would rise to the question of but this now this new this new phone call really really raises some concern on on what's going down and i i think he should he should be removed from his position and then he should be investigated um and whatnot but he should not be allowed to to maintain uh his chairmanship uh, of the armed forces frank it should not be be the case frank it's bruce i, I have one yeah. question and then and we need to go to break right after but um my 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 concern is, you know, in, in other times, uh, if senior military officers felt that their leaders were giving them bad orders, or they disagreed and so on, uh, they resigned. They put their bars on, on, on the table. Yeah. And they offer their resignation. Sometimes, yep. you know, in in um, uh, you know facing loss of pension and 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 so on. Why right. don't you think that's happened here? And and why has or how has our our national defense been turned into a political machine? Yeah, I, I think this goes way back. Um, you know, previous presidents, mostly those on the Democratic side of the aisle have seen, um, you know, the, the military as a tool. So, for example, when Obama became president, one of the first things he did is he cleaned house. He basically made sure that a lot of these senior army leaders kind of were forced out and forced to retire. And he brought in a lot of new blood and new blood that was loyal to the Democratic ideology and train of thought. A lot of those officers now have moved up through the ranks and are now in a lot of these positions. When, when Trump came in, the biggest mistake he made was he didn't fire all these guys. And I think the last time we were on the show, we talked, I don't know if we did it on the air or we were We out did it on the air. And, 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 uh, um, George C. Marshall, when he became Army Chief of Staff, right at the beginning of World War II, brought 200 of these political animal generals at, that had risen through the ranks after World War I, and they, be, they basically become political animals within the Army. And he knew he needed commanders and, and, and fighters uh, to go to war, because he knew the war was coming. This was 1939. He, it, it, he, he took office the day the Nazis invaded Poland. So he knew the day was coming, and he had a short period of time to get the Army in shape. So he brought these 200 generals and colonels in, thanked them for the service, and said, you are now hereby retired. And he brought in all new blood. That needs to happen. I don't think it's fixable by, by tweaking around the edges. Whoever becomes the next president of the United States, whether it's Trump again, whether it's DeSantis, whether it's Christy Nome, I don't care. Whoever they are, they need to clean ranks because you have nothing but woke political animals running the military right now. And we've seen 
that they care more about rooting out and going on witch hunts, looking for the so-called white supremacist army that's out there, and going through the ranks and finding any Trump supporter, anybody that has a bumper sticker on their pickup truck or anything, and trying to force these guys out of the military or get rid of these guys. They're more concerned about that or running these woke ads on TV you know, talking about how, oh, my mommies were lesbians and, you know, I'm all I'm all for this now and the Army loves this and, you know, I'm, I'm all about being in the Army because the Army supports us now. They're not running the ads like we saw the Russians running about, hey, join the Russian Army. We're going to teach you to be a badass and go yeah. out there and, and, and kill people and That's break things. The These guys got to go. The number one purpose of the federal government is to provide for the common defense. That yes. is their job. Everything else is secondary, and now they are failing miserably to do that. They, they have, they've turned the military into a political machine. The vast majority of senior ranking officers within that machine now are, are buying into this wokeism, and, and they're, they're in the process destroying, and wimpification of our military is underway to where if we really do have to go up against a near-peer adversary, whether it's the Russians or the Chinese, we're in big trouble. Because we have lost the focus. The focus is to fight wars and win wars. That is what the focus is. Not all this other woke crap that they're pushing right now. Yeah. Frank, I hate to do this. We've got to go to the bottom of the hour break. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Thanks for your insight. We'll have you back on again soon. And when we return, author Richard Evans joins us, and we'll discuss his new book he wrote with Michael Kluger, Roosevelt, and Churchill, The Atlantic Charter. Stay tuned to Inside Track. We'll be right back. Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. What other kind of customers do you have? So our biggest customers are actually like ranchers and people from outside of the Tucson area. They're buying a lot of square tubing. They're buying a lot of stuff for their ranch to close off fences. We'll sell anything from 10 feet to 10,000 feet to somebody that comes in because we have new steel and surplus steel from steel mills. The reason we're able to get such good pricing on some of this stuff is, A, we sell scrap to the mill. So uh, we have a relationship there, and then we can buy material, what they're making, bringing it back. And so we save on freight, and we have relationships for years with them. So I think that's really our niche market. We'll sell whatever you need. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard, 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up with science. You mean you don't use a shoe? (sighs) No, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? None of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com. I'm Eb Wilkinson with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. I don't ever want you to be dependent on government ever again. I want you to become financially independent. You will never, ever have to depend on socialist security for your survival. We are here to guide you to financial independence. That's imuswilkinson.com, 777-1911. That's 777-1911. Welcome back to Inside Track. The boys are back together. Before we get to special guest Richard Evans and his book, Roosevelt and Churchill, 
the Atlantic Charter. Now is a perfect time to call Corazon Cabinets to get a jump on your next home improvement project. No supply chain problem on cabinets being available at Corazon. Joy Alley and their crew have their entire 6,000 square foot warehouse stacked to the rafters with beautiful cabinets ready now for your next home improvement project. Call Monday and speak to the design professionals at Corazon. Four eight eight two two six six. On to our special guest for the remainder of the show today, Richard Evans, author, along with Michael Kluger, wrote Roosevelt and Churchill, The Atlantic Charter, A Risky Meeting at Sea, Which Saved Democracy. His, uh, co, uh, um, his book, co-authored with Michael Kluger, is published by Naval Institute Press and is available everywhere. Welcome to Inside Track, Richard. How are you today? I'm doing very well, thank you. Great. We had hoped uh, to have you and your co-author, Michael Kluger, on together in stereo. We thought that would be great. Uh, but we're pleased that you took time out of your day to uh, visit with us. Uh, whereabouts are you calling in from today? Delray Beach, Florida. Good wow. for you. Nice. Yeah, my business partner uh, lives down there with his family. That's a great, uh, great area. Hey, uh, tell us about your background, Richard. Oh, my goodness. Um, well, the quick way, cheating, is to say by my autobiography, The Roving Eye. Um, I started in journalism at a very young age, 17. I became a sports writer. I went into the British Army for two years, national service. We still had it then. And um, then I, uh, I suppose I upped and left a very good job on the London Evening Standard, where the editor was Charles Winter. Uh, who is the father of Anna Wintour, who yeah. you might have heard of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he was my first editor, magnificent editor, very austere man, but uh, he, he he was terrific. And um, I got married to another journalist, and we were crazy and young and decided to leave the excellent jobs we had on the Evening Standard and come to America, which we did. And um, we eventually split up over here, but I ended up switching from sport to become the foreign correspondent, the chief correspondent for the London Evening News, which was the rival paper, and spent seven years writing about everything, including American politics, including being in Grand Park, Chicago in 1968, and outside the hotel, the, the hospital where Bobby Kennedy died after being shot, and walking the streets of Detroit as the city was in flames in 1967, and all those um, high points of American history of that era. So you're a journo and, and uh, a very good reporter, recorder of, of facts. Um, hey, we'll start where we usually do. Uh, we know this is the 80th anniversary year of the Atlantic Charter. Uh, but tell us, why did you write Roosevelt and Churchill, the Atlantic Charter, a risky meeting at sea, which saved democracy now? And... and Richard, what makes your book different from others that have been written about the Charter? Well, to start with, uh, uh, we can blame my co-author, Michael, because it was entirely his idea. Um, uh, he was introduced, uh, we were introduced by a great friend of mine, Owen Williams, who was a, a sporting entrepreneur and ran the South African Open. He was actually tournament director of the U.S. Open one year. But he introduced me to Michael. He said, I've got this friend. Um, who's not a writer, but he's got this bee in his bonnet about the Atlantic Charter because he, 
he thinks nobody knows about it, which was fair. And um, so I thought that'd be fun because I've written, well, I know on my 23rd book, but they were virtually all about sport. And although I'd spent that period of my life as a foreign correspondent, I'd always been close to politics and I thought it'd be fun to write about something else. Hmm. Um, And so we um, embarked on the research for this book and what the intention of writing it was really to present the world's two greatest leaders of the 20th century, maybe two greatest leaders in history, to a younger audience who um, in this day and age do not have the time uh, to sit down and read a 600-page tome, worthy as they may be. So this was not written for college professors. It was written, hopefully, for a younger generation who who know, they know the name Churchill, they know the name Roosevelt, but they really don't know much about them. So we picked a dramatic moment, and there's nothing more dramatic than uh, August 1941 when Churchill had decided, or Roosevelt had decided, that they had better meet because uh, the world was on the edge of some momentous catastrophe. And so Roosevelt, for rather obvious reasons, wasn't going to go to London, But Churchill said, I'll come to you. So he takes himself off on one of his uh, battleships, uh, the HMS, uh, it's gone. Prince of Wales, I think. Yes. And uh, set off across the North Atlantic, which was infested with U-boats. And the the tonnage of of Allied shipping that was being sunk in those months in 1941 and 42 was horrific. But um, they set off with an escort of three destroyers. And the first night out, there was the most almighty storm. The destroyers couldn't keep up. And so the admiral, the captain aboard, said, what do we do? Churchill said, we're continuing straight ahead. And he treated it as an adventure. Uh, And we've written it. The start of the book hopefully reads like an adventure on the high seas, because that's what it was. It was, sure. And he'd been stuck in Downing Street ever since becoming prime minister uh, just over a year before. And he said, this is the best fun I've had since I've become prime minister. But that was Churchill in a nutshell. Uh, so, hey, just a, a, a quick thing for you, if you can. If you're on a speakerphone uh, or if on your speaker feature, if you could go back to handheld, um, that would be better for our listeners. I can hear you a little more clearly. Um, hey, by, so let's set up okay. the scene. Let's set up the scene, Richard. By August 1941, Churchill has been at 10 Downing for about 15 months, like you said. The war in Europe and yep. Africa is not going very well uh, against Nazi Germany. Uh, they've been bombed. You know, they bombed the crap out of him in the Blitz for well over a year. Um, Winston Churchill... I was underneath it, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Winston Churchill does the unpredictable thing, okay, and defies all odds to meet with FDR in person. Um, Besides the, the awful weather... Um, there were there were U-boats on patrols. Uh, we know that the that the uh, Atlantic seaboard uh, coastline was was uh, littered with these U-boats trying to you know get at shipping and so on. How in the heck did they make it to Newfoundland in one piece? Well, I think the storm helped because the storm wasn't good for U-boats either. Mm. So that that helped to begin with. And they had good navigation, and uh, the, there were other ships around to alert them to any 
danger and luck played a huge part. I think that's the only thing you can say because they made it across and they made it back and they never actually got shot at or torpedoed. Um, So there was a a tremendous amount of luck involved and you shudder if if you think of what had happened if that ship had gone down because uh, Britain without Churchill at that moment in history would have been a very different place. And and Richard, you know, today there's so many leaks from so many different uh, uh, people. Uh, it's hard to keep things a secret. It's amazing, you know, the, the the Nazis would have given anything to kill both of these leaders at the same time. They're in Placentia Bay in in Newfoundland. Um, how in the heck did they keep this thing a secret? Well, it was leaking. Um, uh, Rumours started inevitably, but uh, Roosevelt went to extraordinary lengths uh, to uh, keep it a secret. Um, He he was followed around, of course, everywhere by the Secret Service, but he put out the story that he he just wanted some time on his yacht and uh, give him some space. And so he uh, had the crew dress up um, as his aides, and someone impersonated him with his uh, long cigarette holder and Panama hat, and they sailed close to the coastline, um, and uh, people took long-distance photographs, and there was Roosevelt uh, somewhere near Nantucket or something, when in fact he was on a cruiser heading north to Newfoundland. Whoa. That's that's great. Uh, that's great intrigue. Ab, go ahead. Okay, so following up on that, Roosevelt had been cool publicly about getting involved in the war uh, since the start of September 1939. Why did he agree to this meeting to begin with? And and how was he able to keep this thing secret? And how secret well, was it? Well, as I've just explained, he, he he did his best to camouflage it, and it remained a secret for long enough. Uh, the secret was out by the time they'd finished their meeting. Okay. But uh, he, he wanted to meet uh, uh, Churchill because although the anti-war faction uh, was very strong, uh, and, and that was really what was holding him back until, of course, Pearl Harbor several months later, but uh, uh, Roosevelt being as acute as he was, knew that sooner or later America was going to be drawn into this conflict because Hitler had taken over Europe. And the only remaining bastion of non-Nazi Europe was the little island of Great Britain. And the man who seemed to be in charge was someone called Winston Churchill, who some people thought was a drunk. So some of um, Roosevelt's aides had been in London and said he, he drinks all the time. He's a drunk. What people didn't realize was that, A, he could take his alcohol, and B, he was watering down his whiskey surreptitiously. But um, uh, Roosevelt said to uh, his aides, you know, I've got to find out who this man is, because he and I are going to have to have a proper relationship if we're going to stop Hitler. And that is when he said, you know, uh, I've got to meet you, but I can't come to you. And Churchill accepted the invitation, hazardous as it was. <laughs> Richard, um, regarding regarding their relationship, this is Bruce again. Um, am I correct? Uh, I thought I had read in some uh, uh, book previously that during World War One, 
Churchill and Roosevelt had met, or sometime uh, right after that. I, am I remembering right, or or were they? Had no, they you're, never you're, met? You're remembering. You're remembering right. They, they met very briefly yeah. at a function in Gray's Inn Road in London. I can't even remember what it was, but um, uh, Roosevelt was um, assistant secretary of the Navy. Right. And Churchill had already been first sea lord and was very much more established than Roosevelt was. And he sort of brushed FDR off. I mean, it was a, it was a five-minute meeting. It, it was nothing. But uh, I don't think Roosevelt took kindly to it. And I think Churchill actually forgot that he'd ever met him. <laughs> You know, it's so it's so amazing that you know Churchill was able to get there without being you know Blown killed up. killed uh, on the way. It's kind of a god thing. And then you know how how much of a coincidence is he brushes off FDR? You know, some fifteen years or so before, and and or actually more than that. Uh, more than that. And yeah. and and then they come together as, as you said. Maybe the two greatest. Leaders living at the same time to fight this battle. Eb, go ahead. I know you. Yeah, and so, so with that being said, wouldn't it be safe to say that Churchill was desperate for this meeting? Oh, absolutely. He, he. I mean, he knew just as Roosevelt knew that sooner or later um, America would have to come into the war. Uh, Churchill knew that sooner was was absolutely paramount because although these convoys were getting through, some of them. Half of them were ending up at the bottom of the ocean, and Britain was starving. It wasn't just starving of, of, of weapons of war. It was starving literally. And uh, Churchill was desperate to get Roosevelt to commit. And he viewed the meeting off Newfoundland, where they eventually produced the Atlantic Charter, um, as something of a failure, as did people back home in Britain who were hoping for Roosevelt to say, I will come in and join you. And, of course, Roosevelt, for the politics we understand, couldn't do that. And it's, it's interesting to, to, to think about what would have happened if the Japanese hadn't attacked Pearl Harbor. I, I, my view is that sooner or later, um, it, the, the union of declaring war would have happened. But um, it was getting very urgent, and, and Churchill was desperate. To, to get America into the war. So you've got uh, Churchill desperate to meet uh, Roosevelt. You've got Roosevelt sitting here in a country where the American public opinion about getting into the European war at the time in this charter meeting was not popular. Um, mm -hmm. So officially the government's trying to, uh, or is declaring that it doesn't want to get in. They want to stay out of the war. What, yep. Why did Hitler, or jeez, uh, why did Roosevelt agree to meet with uh, Churchill? Well, because as I said, he, he he felt he had to get to know this man, because he knew that he and Churchill would be the two leaders to conduct whatever happened in the future. Um, and uh, he 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 sent um, his, uh, one uh, one of his uh, aides, uh, Harry Hopkins, who was an extraordinary character, over to London. To, to meet with Churchill with the express uh, intent of finding out who really is this man. And uh, he was invited, to have, uh, Harry Hopkins was invited to 10 Downing Street for a late lunch, and it became a later lunch and an even later lunch. And by the time they were on the port, they'd become great pals. I mean, that 
when you think back, is, is such a piece of luck that these two people hit it off and they instantly liked each other. And so um, Hopkins, who was only supposed to be there for a week, he stayed three weeks. Churchill took him everywhere, wined him and dined him in every great hotel and restaurant in Britain. And when uh, Hopkins went back to, uh, well, he'd already cabled uh, Roosevelt, uh, saying, uh, don't worry about anyone else over here. Churchill runs the show. So to that end, uh, your book isn't just about FDR and Churchill. Talk about some of the no. other unknown heroes who helped set this thing up. Yes, the, well, because, you know, there are so many uh, backstop people. I mean, uh, some of them are very well known. General George Marshall, we've done a, a, a chapter on him, ha- Harry Hopkins, and Sumner Wells, who was invited to Newfoundland, um, although he was only Deputy Secretary of State. Sir Alexander Cadogan, who, who actually did much of the writing of the Atlantic Charter from, from the notes he, he was given. And um, at, at the end, we've, we've thrown in a chapter on Randolph Churchill. Um, he was the only person uh, featured heavily in the book who wasn't in Newfoundland, but I especially wanted to grab the opportunity to uh, present this extraordinary man, the son of Winston, who was made himself hugely unpopular because he was a drunk. And he used to explode <laughs> at dinner parties and uh, insult people. But he, he was the best political commentator of his age. He, at the age of 21, was in Berlin writing back to his father saying this was 1931 saying there will be a war. Hitler's generals are still chafing at the Treaty of Versailles, and we've got to face it, there will be a war. And Randolph Churchill was right in so many ways. I don't have time to relate here. But that's the final chapter of the book, because he was a fascinating personality. And in many ways, although it was his fault, he was misjudged. Um. We know, and we'll talk about this in, in a few minutes, we know what happened uh, as a result of the Atlantic Charter. But explain exactly what the Atlantic Charter is and why you think it's still important now on its 80th anniversary. Well, it, they, they wanted to have some sort of uh, something to show for their meeting. Uh, and uh, I, I think uh, it, it's unclear who, who actually proposed it first. It may have been FDR, but Churchill was very keen to do it, and he did the original writing. It's an eight-point charter to uh, lay out for the world's nations as to how they should behave towards each other in times of peace, and if necessary, in times of war. And it became the, uh, the sort of uh, first idea of laying down uh, a charter for the, Atlanta, for the United Nations. Uh, and it was used as such later on. Uh, but it was just to try and bring nations together. And uh, they, the, the rest of the world had to listen. Once World War II was over, Um, The rest of the world had to listen because the only people who had the ships and the guns and the the submarines and the aircraft were were, uh, the United States and Great Britain. So they they had the power, if you like, or, or the gravitas to be able to put out this charter saying 
this is how we should behave. And it was amazing. Um, and we were, needless to say, delighted when uh, Joe Biden and Boris Johnson met in, in Devon, what, three or four months ago, mm-hmm. and decided to resurrect the Atlantic Charter and update it and use it again as their basis for how the world should treat each other. So the special relationship that we oftentimes uh, hear from both American presidents and secretaries of state, as well as from British leaders and and their foreign minister, um, this is really the the formalization then of that special relationship in in terms of concrete means uh, to work toward peace in the world? Yes, I think so. Um, uh, I mean, it it, uh, it it obviously wasn't adhered to as everyone would have wished, uh, because we've seen the wars that have followed. But it certainly laid down the rules of the game, if you like. They weren't always followed, but the rules were there. And the two men who did it um, were from the United States of America and Great Britain. And and the the friendship was formed in great solidarity by the time the war ended this relationship was the single most important relationship in the world and uh, would have continued to be so for a little longer if um, FDR hadn't mm-hmm. died and Churchill hadn't lost the first election mm-hmm. after the war mm-hmm. but uh, yes it, 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 it was uh, certainly an important early sign of the special relationship so, so Churchill was a night owl he loved being up late. Um, Roosevelt was a great storyteller. Um, in your book, um, any stories about how the two of them stayed up late at night, uh, cooking cooking the stuff up or charming the, <laughs> the pants off of one another? Um, yeah, they, they did that, I, I think, more later on when they met um, in, in Casablanca, um, and maybe Yalta FDR was getting a, a little bit ill. But yes, uh, FDR did something quite extraordinary because he had an enormous ego and uh, he, he held the floor in, in any meeting that was taking place privately or publicly. But when they met, I think it was the second night they met in Newfoundland and Churchill had been invited um, onto um, the American cruiser uh, FDR made a deliberate uh, decision. He decided to give Churchill the floor and sit back, and all the officers were there from both sides, and he just virtually blew the whistle and said, go. And everybody who has ever been in Churchill's company said uh, the man was mesmerizing. He was the greatest raconteur ever. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the next hour... Roosevelt allowed Churchill to speak without interruption. And people looked at each other and thought, whoa, never seen this before. Mm. And uh, he he was, uh, because FDR was, was wily and shrewd and thinking ahead, and he had realized by then, even that early, that Churchill was the last bastion against total Nazi domination of Europe and that it was important for people to know who he was and to get to admire him and respect him. And that, the, that hour that Churchill was allowed to talk to all the senior military officers and politicians that Roosevelt had brought with him, like Sumner Wells, 
um, really sort of did the trick because Churchill, as usual, was spellbinding. Richard, talk about the scene on the deck of the Augusta uh, when they sang hymns and had uh, and had a, a religious uh, 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 service there. Yes, that was. Um, I, th- I think that was Churchill's idea. Um, he felt that um, it, it, it was appropriate. He wanted to find a way to take time off from the endless meetings that were going on. But he, he wanted, and FDR, as soon as he heard about the idea, was absolutely on board with it, that he, he, he wanted the two navies to mingle. He wanted the sailors to mingle. And uh, so he arranged this uh, religious service, which was going to be held and was held on the deck of the HMS Prince of Wales. And it was deliberately totally informal. Um, both uh, crews were told, just go over to the, well, the, the British were obviously there. The Americans were told, just, just go over. Uh, we're going to have a service. And the sailors met and chatted and talked and prayed and uh, songs were sung and hymns were sung and it was just one of the great moments. Hmm. So today diplomatic and strategic meetings amongst world leaders, uh, they don't meet until most of the details are worked out in advance uh, of the principals Mm. actually meeting and then they end up with these lengthy agreements and declarations, statements and press conferences and so on. Am I to understand that, in large part, this one was set up with notes scribbled on the back of a napkin, and the final document was 200 words, and maybe I got that wrong. Um, Tell us about the documentation of the Atlantic Charter. Did it ever get signed? No, it was... was, No. uh, (laughs) That's amazing, isn't it? (laughs) No, it never was. Um, In fact, when someone asked uh, Roosevelt, uh, you know, have you got a copy? Can I see the signed copy? He said, uh, no, I I don't have one. You better check with the radio operator who had radioed it to Deputy Prime Minister Attlee in the House of Commons. And they all, the entire (laughs) cabinet were roused in the middle of the night, literally at 2 a.m. And by 3.30 or 4, they'd all read it, approved it and cabled it back. But it was never signed. Um, but the, uh, the the informality of it was extraordinary because it, it started with Churchill and Roosevelt and some of the officers sitting at dinner, uh, and as you say, scrawling notes on the backs of the menus. And uh, <laughs> Harry Hopkins, who was very sharp, knew that Churchill wanted things out of Roosevelt that Roosevelt would be embarrassed to say no to giving. And he noticed that Churchill was scribbling something um, on the back of an envelope and and nudging it towards Roosevelt, and and Hopkins snatched it (laughs) before it got to Roosevelt. And uh, all that sort of stuff went on, which was, in hindsight, very amusing. But yes, it began with, with people writing from notes uh, Cadogan and Sumner Wells and, and Churchill himself uh, coming up with the first draft and then they argued and came up with the second draft and there were some sticking points and it was just done over really two and a half days um, right off the cuff. Okay, uh, Richard, sadly we're down to our last few moments of the show. We've got a minute left. 80 years after this historic meeting, 
What do you think the condition is of our alliance, not just with Britain, but other allies around the world, especially in terms of our latest history? Well, I think, um, uh, you know, Trump was a tragedy as far as America's relations with the world. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, uh, he he may have a following here, but I traveled around Europe uh, during the years he was in the White House, and you mentioned his name, and people either laughed or scowled. And he was a disaster for America um, of of enormous proportions. And whether you're Democrat or Republican, whether you like Joe Biden or don't, um, the present president is remending relations with the rest of the world. And it's vital um, for all sorts of reasons, which we don't need to go into. But just the standing of America dipped seriously during the Trump years. And it's being put back together again because America is America. People really love Americans and it's all powerful. So um, we'll get over it. But it was a a major problem for a time. Well, Richard, I'm afraid we have to leave it right there for now. Thanks for for visiting with us and and thanks uh, for all the time that you've given us on, on today's show. Insiders, Eb and I hope that you've enjoyed today's chats with Frank Antonori and talking with Roosevelt and Churchill, the Atlantic Charter, a whiskey meeting at sea which saved democracy, author Richard Evans, Naval Institute Press, available everywhere. Till next Saturday when author John McLean talks about a sequel to his father's book, A A River River. Runs Through It. Join us. This is Bruce. And Eb. And thanks for joining us today. Wishing you all a very pleasant good afternoon. Jamie Kipper and her father, Gary Kipper, from Tucson Iron and Metal. What are they going to see when they come through the gates? So when they come on in, they'll see our building up front. People have free reign to then go out and look in the yard. So it's not a typical scrapyard with a ton of big machinery. We have a couple of forklifts around, but that's about it just to help move material. So when you come in, it's all organized by material, whether it's square tubing, angle iron, roofing, and then there is a pile in the back, which is still organized and easy to get through. But that's stuff that comes over from the scrap. So we're unique in that we get stuff in from the scrap, which a lot of artists and people will like or reuse, whether it's a sink that someone needs for their house. We sell literally anything made of metal. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard, 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Wouldn't it be great if political leaders could create that country again? Learn how to do exactly that one family at a time with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, imuswilkinson.com, 777-1911.